There's been a lot of contention in terms of economic policy between the Democrats and Republicans in regard to regulation. How much regulation is too much regulation? Yeah, I mean, that's something you hear pretty often, especially for people that are really like policy-minded. There's a lot of talk about how much government intervention in the economy is necessary and how much is warranted. But I think sometimes even the way that the discussion is framed kind of leads us down a non-productive path. Because I really think the discussion shouldn't be about the quantity of regulation. It needs to be about quality. Because, I mean, just to give you an example, let's say you have one really important regulation that's over it's monitoring some sort of financial activity on Wall Street. If you get rid of that regulation and then you replace it with five regulations that are less effective, you have increased the quantity of regulations on the books, but you've actually decreased the effectiveness of the regulations. So I think our discussion needs to be much more about looking at what these individual regulations are doing and analyzing whether or not they are serving the public interests or special interests, because that's really the discussion that needs to be had. You need to be focused a lot more on how effective are these regulations at achieving broad social goals, um, as opposed to how many regulations as a whole are on the books. Does and that make sense? Yes. Who would be the, Who could decide that? Um, Well, at the end of the day, I mean, a lot of these are decided by our legislators. Um, So we pass laws. I mean, Dodd-Frank was a good example in the aftermath of the 2008 uh, Great Recession. So legislators, they pass, you know, regulatory packages, and then it is up to regulatory agencies to enforce those regulations. And that's another big problem that a lot of people have is that some of these regulatory agencies, even if we have somewhat effective regulations on the books, if the regulatory agency that's responsible for enforcing those rules is either improperly funded or corrupted, you can have good regulations, but they're not going to be enforced in a way that's beneficial. Can you give any examples of where we have deregulated and it has caused harm, there's been tragedy or misfortune because of it? Yeah, I mean, probably the number one thing that comes to mind is the repeal of Glass-Steagall. And I think it was Bill Clinton that did that. Now, just for a little bit of history on what Glass-Steagall was, so in the aftermath of the Great Depression, you know, there was a massive financial crisis that triggered a massive deflationary spiral in the economy. Um, And in the aftermath of that, we had a massive progressive movement that was focused on regulating the economy, getting things back on track, and really taking substantive efforts to ensure that something like this wouldn't happen again. And one of the big things that they got done was something known as the Glass-Steagall Act. And perhaps the largest part of that was it separated commercial and investment banking. Um, And the purpose of this was to try and reduce this inherent tendency in the financial sector to engage in extreme speculative activity. And the thought was if you can keep commercial and investment banking separate, at least you can ensure that the speculative activity that really poses a risk to the financial sector isn't going to become a system-wide risk and instead will be relegated to investment banks and it won't bleed over as much into commercial banking. Um, but Clinton got rid of that, and it was under this guise, that, the same guise that's commonly used to deregulate industries, which is, well, it's going to make us more competitive. Um, we'll let the market mechanisms kind of ensure that everyone's playing by the rules. There are some cases where that works, but with something like the financial sector, you cannot leave it up to market mechanics. And what we quickly 
I mean, it happened relatively quickly afterwards. We had a massive bubble. That was the dot-com bubble. That bursted. Around 10 years past, we have the 2008 real estate crisis and all of these derivatives and um, very complex financial instruments that they were selling. Um, they went belly up and it caused another massive financial crisis that if the government hadn't have come in and bailed out the banks, we could have been looking at another Great Depression-like scenario. But as opposed to you know the 1920s and 30s when we did learn from our mistakes, it doesn't seem we've learned from our mistakes because even after that, we passed the Dodd-Frank Act, which was kind of a watered-down version of Glass-Steagall, and that only lasted a few years before Trump repealed it. So now we're also in another very dangerous situation. So why would you repeal it? Um, a lot of it goes back to this argument that you know, excessive regulation in the financial sector hinders growth, it hinders investment, hinders competition. If you just let these banks compete with each other and you let them engage in, you know, somewhat risky activity, uh, they have a financial, they have a profit incentive to not engage in excess risky activity. So they're kind of self-regulating. But we've seen historically that's not true. But we still go back to these same ideas. And I think Paul Krugman, he's a very famous economist. He calls them, uh, I think he calls them zombie economics. So it's these ideas that no matter how many times they're proven wrong, they just won't die. And this idea of deregulation, especially in crucial sectors like the financial sector, is one of those zombie ideas. And I think one reason for that, beyond just the fact that to some you know, intellectuals and specifically people on Wall Street, they want to believe this argument – um, there's just a profit incentive behind it. And the profit incentive is f towards who? Uh, it's towards the bankers and the hedge fund managers and you know traders on Wall Street who want to take advantage of these very risky financial activities because for a while you can make a lot of money. I mean in the run-up to 2008, people were making a killing. Just like in the run-up to the Great Depression, people were making a killing on Wall Street. So Glass-Steagall was so that the risk would somewhat inhibit them making too risky of decisions. Yeah, the, the rules were set up in such a way to where, one, those sort of risky investments were less desirable from a regulatory standpoint. And also, even if they were, it wouldn't bleed out throughout the entire system because there was kind of this barrier, right? So you can think of it, perhaps a good analogy would be, you know how in like national forests they have fire lanes that they build um, in between these different sp spaces of forest to ensure that if there's a wildfire, there's a gap so it has a harder time spreading throughout the entire forest. You can think of Glass-Steagall in that kind of way as well, whereby in separating commercial and investment banking, that kind of acted as a fire lane to prevent the inherent speculative nature of investment banking from bringing the whole system down to its knees. So who is for this and who is against it? Who's for what? <clears throat> who is for deregulation and who is for maybe not more regulation, but at least bringing a, some level More effective back. regulation, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, you know, it really depends on specifically what we're talking about. I'd say in general, Republicans are more in favor of deregulation um, simply because historically they have been the party of big business. That is their traditional donor class. They tend to accept more money from places like Wall Street and the financial sector. Um, 
But there are Democrats who in some ways have engaged in deregulatory activity as well. I mean I already gave you the example of Bill Clinton. Um, these are more of the neoliberal Democrats, the uh, the new Democrats. Um, they were really popular, came really strong into power probably around the 90s and through the 2000s. And there's still a large contingent in the Democratic Party of people like that. But you're starting to see more of a turn in both parties away from that kind of neoliberal status quo towards a sort of new populism. We've received some pushback on this podcast from those who adhere to neoliberalism views. Can you give us some of the pros and cons of neoliberalism and maybe some relevant history on the subject? Yeah, sure. So I guess first we'll it might be helpful just to kind of explain what neoliberalism is because although it's kind of a common political buzzword you hear, especially on online politics, I think there are probably a lot of people that aren't extremely familiar with what it is. Um, so really it's kind of an economic doctrine. Um, I'd say it has four main pillars. So that's going to be deregulation, privatization, tax cuts, and like austerity programs like reducing welfare spending. Tax cuts for who? Um, mainly for the wealthy, but it, depending on who's in office, it can be just across the board tax cuts um, because neoliberals, generally speaking, believe that money and capital is better handled by the private market as opposed to the government. So they think that the more money we can keep in the hands of private citizens, uh, the better that's going to translate in terms of broader economic outcomes. Um, I'd say neoliberalism really kind of came into full swing in the 70s and 80s. Um, it was really in response to some of the economic hardships that the previous economic model we'd been following was undergoing at the time. So that was the stagflation of the 70s. Um, and there was a rise of economists um, and also just broad cultural shifts as well that kind of brought neoliberalism into popularity um, and I'd say Reagan, above all, was probably a real driving force in that because he kind of made that the new heart of the Republican Party. Um, and then piggybacking off the success of Reagan, we also saw it take over the Democratic Party and that we saw that with Clinton. Um, and that kind of new status quo was carried over for probably about 40 years, but I'd say we're starting to see some chips and cracks. But in terms of pros and cons of neoliberalism, um, Globalism has undoubtedly brought higher living standards to many people across the world. Um, it's given American consumers an endless choice of cheap products made in other countries um, that many of us can enjoy and many of us regularly purchase. Um, in some ways, it's brought some members of the international community closer together by inter uh, intertwining their economies. Um, and that in some ways has acted as a bulwark against unnecessary aggression. But at the end of the day, countries will typically choose security over economic concerns. So how well that will continue to work remains to be seen. Um, we did experience a period of relatively high growth um, in Reagan, especially the years of Clinton. But a big criticism of that is that, yes, neoliberalism has brought relatively decent growth, at least in the first 20 to 30 years. 
But a lot of that growth was fake growth. It was growth in asset prices, growth in the financial sector. It wasn't growth in the real productive economic activity that actually enhances our lives, but it was rather a growth in the wealth of the elites at the top that may reflect as higher GDP, but it's actually merely an increasing in inequality that's leaving those that own assets significantly wealthier while leaving everyone that doesn't own assets poorer. So I'd say... That's one of the big criticisms of neoliberalism is the growth and explosion and inequality that has happened as a result of it. Um, because whenever you deregulate you know, things like the financial sector, you tend to get asset bubbles. Asset bubbles widen inequality and they also make the economy as a whole more unstable. They also tend to grant large power imbalances to those at the top because their wealth is growing exponentially faster than the wealth of those at the bottom. That buys them political leverage that they can then use to influence government to serve their interests as opposed to the public's interests. Which sectors became privatized and did it work? Um, there were a lot of sectors. Um, I'd say there were some relative successes. Um, one of the big ones that was talked about was the privatization of the airline industry. Um and that was successful at first, but I think we're starting to see some of the limits of that because what has happened since then is there's been a massive consolidation. And really, there are just a few airlines now that own a bulk of the market share. And because they have so much market share, they're almost – they're colluding with each other in a sense to keep prices high and to keep the serv- the quality of their services low – Um, And you see that all the time. I mean, there aren't many Americans that love flying, um, and there's good reason for that. It's because these airline services, um, as a result of going private and now, you know, functionally colluding with each other to keep prices high and quality low, um, they're able to kind of get American consumers, and there's not much the government can really do about it. If we talk about the airlines, and this is kind of a sidebar, but what happened to them following covid Well, one of the big things was, so uh, airlines are seen as an essential industry in the U.S., and there's good reason for that. I mean, it's important, especially in a modern economy, that people can get from A to B um, relatively quickly. That's important for business. It's important for all sorts of things. Um, So we were really concerned during COVID that the airlines might go belly up because obviously people aren't going to be traveling much in the midst of a pandemic, especially when a lot of people were on lockdown. So we took... We took very large steps in terms of bailing them out to ensure that they had the funding necessary to maintain their staff, to maintain their facilities in order to weather the COVID storm. What happened was we failed to include the necessary provisions in those bailouts, which some people might consider an oversight, some people might consider a deliberate handout. Um, we failed to include the necessary provisions to ensure that the money we were giving them was being spent for the explicit purposes for why we were giving them the money in the first place. Um, So we had, I think think there were time limits in there where we said, you know, you have to use this money to pay your employees for X months. But as soon as that date hit, they went on a massive layoff spree. Um, And they basically forced retirement packages on all sorts of pilots and different Um, staff members because at that time they were just considered an unnecessary cost because they weren't doing the amount of business to need all of those people. So they thought, 
well, let's just use this money for our shareholders. Let's shred these unnecessary costs and we can deliver really great returns for a while. Um, that's the typical short-term profit incentive that you hear so many people complain about. But as soon as the pandemic you know, kind of started coming to an end and activity started ramping back up and demand for flights started surging, they quickly realized that they didn't have enough pilots to meet demand. So uh, it started pushing prices up and they were kind of in this rush and there were all sorts of flight cancellations and well, they were complaining to the media about how well COVID, you know, we were understaffed because of COVID. They weren't understaffed. They deliberately forced themselves to be understaffed by taking the money the public gave them for the purpose of maintaining their staff, not using it for that purpose. And then complain to the public afterwards like uh, it was all – they were a victim of the situation. So they became privatized. Then the government bailed them out. And then they had really good profits even following COVID because they did stock buybacks. Yeah. To – satisfy their shareholders mm -hmm. so it's sort of a it's kind of interesting that we're still paying the public is still paying for the airlines in a real sense but we're not getting any of the benefits that came with having public airlines interesting yeah and it's 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 that common refrain that you hear and i'm really not sure who popularized this but uh they say, you know, it's rugged individualism for the poor and socialism for the rich in America. And I think the airline industry is a great example of that. Now, this isn't to say that I don't think that we should bail out important industries whenever they're in tough times. But we need to be assured that there are provisions in those bailouts that ensure they're spending this money the way that they're supposed to be. Because otherwise, you might as well just cut them a blank check and say, here you go, do what you want with it. And I don't think that's right. And that is a gross misallocation of public funding. Can we talk now about the political shifts in America? What political shifts have occurred over the last decade? Over the last decade? Yeah, so, you know, political shifts rarely just happen of their own accord. There's always an inciting incident or an inciting period that tends to foment a massive political shift. I think the big I think there were two big things that really cemented a large shift over the past decade. Um I think the first is the rise of social media and the internet. So the power of the average person to make their voice heard has been amplified 10x, 20x, 100 times in the last decade. I mean, it really cannot be overstated the degree to which average people can now communicate and spread ideas. Um, so you have that on one end, and then on the other end, we had the Great Recession, which was kind of like the final nail in the coffin, in a sense, of the neoliberal establishment. Um, because a lot of people saw with their naked eyes, especially in the aftermath of that, what looked like governments and institutions doing what was necessary to take care of the elite, which caused the recession to begin with, while leaving average people out to dry and failing to engage in the necessary reform and the necessary action that not only would make something like that unlikely to happen again, but also to ensure that everyone that was harmed by that event um, received their proper economic justice. That didn't happen. Um, and I think as a result of that, plus the internet, we've seen a large shift towards a sort of new anti-establishment rhetoric on both sides. 
Um, and you can call this populist if you want, but you see it, you saw it especially in Trump's campaign. You know, a lot of his rhetoric um, was aimed at what was seen as this elite establishment that had lost a connection with the people. Um, he said the government, you know, is being run by these bureaucrats who were all members of, you know, this elite cabal of people. Um, and they're running the country for their own interests, and it's been costing you jobs and money and wages for decades, and enough is enough. At least that was his rhetoric. And you also see some of the same populist rhetoric starting to emerge on the left, albeit to a uh, significantly less effective degree with Bernie Sanders, because um, he was talking a lot about you know, the corrupt establishment, how they serve the interests of the wealthy elite, and how you know, the main political parties are basically controlled by their donor class, um, this is a massive shift in the order of our politics, especially away from that neoliberal status quo that was in effect for almost 40 years. Um, and I think that populist strain is continuing to grow. Um, you even see what are seen as more traditional um, kind of neoliberal politicians such as Joe Biden forced to adopt some of this populist rhetoric um, in order to appeal to even people within his own party because that is the direction which our politics is heading. Explain populism. Yeah, so populism is really, it's a political style that's focused kind of on the average person. Um, and basically the heart of populism is that it's this conception that the elite, and people can have different conceptions of who the elite are, but it's this conception that the elite, which are actually running things, have lost touch with the average person. And the average people need to take their power back from the elite in order to implement the changes they want to see in government. Um, I think there are reasons people feel this way. Um, because on the left, you know, they see political parties that receive massive donations and lobbying efforts from large corporations, from Wall Street, and then they see policies that come out that oftentimes serve those interests, um, even if they feel that it doesn't serve their interests as voters. Um, and on the right, you know, there are a lot of people that feel that these wealthy liberals and coastal cities are kind of calling the shots, especially these government bureaucrats with these elite educations, um, and that their interests are kind of being ignored uh, in pursuit of that. But I also think a large part of it is merely the result of the fact that the way our American institutions are set up, in order to have large changes in policy or in government, you need to have a very large consensus of people agreeing on it. Um, because our system is one with a massive amount of checks and balances, there's a lot of redundancy in the system, and that's built there by design to prevent significant massive change from occurring too quickly and causing a destabilization. So in order to get the changes that people want, there need to be a large consensus. And the problem is we're so politically polarized now that we don't have that consensus. So people on both sides feel like the government isn't doing much of anything 
and that causes them to lash out in all sorts of ways, and it manifests as this populist rhetoric. Um, and I do think some of the populist rhetoric has some interesting things to say, you know, about corruption, about lobbying and political donations and that sort of thing. But people also need to realize that a big reason things aren't getting done right now is simply because we can't agree with each other. And if we as the voters can't agree with each other, we're not going to be able to unify behind any sort of coherent vision for the country. That manifests as political gridlock and the government becomes significantly less effective. Do you think the average American is as partisan as the media portrays? I think the average American is this like messy mosaic of various political opinions. Um, I think there are people that are partisan and their politics generally fall along partisan lines. But I think if you went to the average person you found on the street and you asked them, you know, a set of political questions, their answers are probably going to be all over the place. They're going to give you one answer you might hear from a Republican, one you might hear from a liberal, one you might hear from a libertarian, and one you might hear from a socialist. And these sorts of people, these sort of median independent voters who probably aren't really that engaged in politics, um, they have a lot of power when they vote. And those are the sorts of votes that a lot of candidates are fighting for because they know that their hyperpartisan votes, generally speaking, are going to be locked in. So they're making an effort to appeal to those sorts of people um, that aren't necessarily centrist, but they just – they don't necessarily have a super coherent political worldview. Um, and as a result of that, they are open to being convinced by different candidates to support – various visions for what the country could look like. What are the pros and cons of populism? Of populism. I'd say the pro, uh, it, the pros are very good um, because you don't want a country, especially in a representative democracy like America is supposed to be, um, you don't want an elite class of people at the top calling all the shots. You want the people to have power. You want the people not only to have power but to feel like they have power because that's important for maintaining a stable society is for people to feel like they have a say in their governance and to feel like their voice and their vote actually matters. Um, so populism is good from time to time at uh, taking some of that power back and ensuring that people feel bought into the system and feel like they can um, act within the system in, in ways that are beneficial. Um, the downsides of populism sometimes is I think there was too much of a focus on individuals and less of a focus on institutions. And it seems, from my perspective at least, that what makes a strong country are strong institutions. You want institutions that can stand the test of time. You want institutions that are stronger than the individuals within them. Because if you have individuals that are stronger than your institutions, that's how you end up in a scenario where people grab too much power and then it can't be taken back because you've granted too much to them. And I think sometimes in populist movements, they have a tendency to idolize certain politicians and trust them over the fundamental institutions of a country, and that results in actually a further destabilization and a further uh, capture of power from the people. Because when you put all this power in this one man as opposed, or woman, as opposed to in the institutions which are meant to serve the people, what you're really doing is you're essentially granting, uh, you're giving your power away in a sense. And I think that's a very dangerous thing. Um, you saw some of the Trump presidency and you even saw some people, you know, with Bernie Sanders, for example, you saw 
plenty of people on the left, you know, saying all these things about what he should do when he was in office and he should get rid of this agency and get rid of this institution and all that, all that sort of thing. And these institutions matter. They matter more than the politicians in a very real sense because it is the institutions that stand the test of time, not individual people. People come and go, but institutions, if they're properly constructed, can last for generations. That's what our focus needs to be on and that's where I think sometimes populism can kind of go off the rails. Well, would if you put your support behind a person as opposed to institution, that allows for the constant flux every four or eight years, yeah. depending on how many terms a president would mm-hmm. serve. Um, and it would just keep us, it would keep America and Americans it would be at the whim be of, chaotic. yes, yeah. at the whim of who was in yeah. the White House. Now, of course, you have to support politicians. That is the way a representative to the democracy works. But ideally, you'd be supporting politicians whose policy ideals were to create stronger institutions that were less susceptible to corruption, that were more functional, that better served the public interest. Not someone that says, well, I'm going to come in with these executive orders that will disappear the second I'm out of office and that's how I'm going to fix everything because that's not really a long-term solution. Um, We want people with long-term solutions that can actually fix the country in ways that can persist for decades after they leave office. Not someone that's going to come in and make things marginally better for four years and then leave us in a worse place than they found us because they ruined the institutions that were necessary for the stable functioning of the country. A lot of Americans feel that their political interests are not represented by our government. Mm -hmm. To me, that's not a new thing. (laughs) Yeah. But can you elaborate? Yeah, I mean, that fundamentally is the rise of this new populism that I'm talking about. People feel that the government is unresponsive to their political interests. Um, And like I said, I think a lot of that, some of it is because of corruption, some of it is because of the the effects of the interests of the wealthy elite on our politics. But another part of it is just the way that our system is set up. Um, And I, I think if we really want to be serious about solving that, we need to find some way to build some unity around some sort of coherent vision for the country's future. And the fact of the matter is we're not all going to get what we want in that process. And we have to be willing... Compromise is a dirty word, but we have to be willing to come together around something that is sensible to a majority of people. Because if we keep splintering off into these groups that don't have a large enough size to get anything done, we're not getting anything done. And we're functionally staying in the same place and we're stagnating. And now is not the time to be stagnating. We're dealing with unprecedented threats domestically and globally. Um, We have existential threats such as climate change that we're facing. And for us to be dealing with all of these crises and we can't get anything done and we're just in a state of almost complete political gridlock is very problematic. Um, And I do think some of that's starting to change. I mean, the Biden administration has accomplished some sizable policy agendas, but there's still a lot more that needs to be done. Um, And it's not going to happen as long as we're so polarized because there's going to be no consensus. And as a result, there's going to be no coherent policy that's coming out of Washington. So you talked about splintering. There is a new third party candidate that's Cornell West. <laughs> Dr. Cornell West. The doctor. West. Yes. Um, what's going on about that? 
Yeah, so Dr. Cornell West is a very famous uh, left-wing academic. He's a philosopher. He's an author. Um, he's, I believe, Harvard and Princeton educated. And he is running for the nomination of the Green Party um, as president of the United States. Um, what is the Green Party? Uh, it is a third party. Uh, they're primarily left-wing. They're focused on issues of uh, racial, uh, environmental, social, and economic justice primarily. Um, so think of a progressive um, and then think about a party full of them with few moderates, and that's kind of the Green Party in a nutshell. And there are some people that are probably disagree with that phrasing. Um, I think the Green Party does take kind of uh, – I think their history is probably more focused on the environmental front, but they really are progressive through and through. Um, so yeah, Dr. Cornell West, he's a – I think he identifies himself as a non-Marxist socialist, I believe. I think I saw that somewhere. Um, grandson of a Baptist minister – um, but he's got a he's got a long pedigree um, in left wing academia, and as a result, a lot of progressives, and specifically a lot of socialists and people even further to the left of that, communists, Marxists, um, are very likely to vote for him as a result of that. And that's something that the Democratic Party is actually concerned about because, as a third party candidate, and considering he's running with the Green Party, he'll actually have ballot access in a lot of places. And he may be able to split the vote significantly enough to where it could actually be of concern for Biden in certain states. Um, and I think that's a big concern that they have because they're not concerned about him winning. I, I don't think he has the broad appeal that would be necessary for that to even be a possibility. But he may be able to bleed off enough of the furthest progressive votes from the Democratic Party where it could actually cost them in certain states or in certain areas, especially where um, it's going to be close between Biden and whoever the Republican nominee ends up being regardless. What is his platform? Why is he running? Um, he's focused primarily on social, economic, and environmental justice. Um, so he's going to talk a lot about race and gender and sexuality in the United States in addition to capitalism and its downsides and things we can do to mitigate that. Um, he's another, obviously, he's an anti-establishment candidate being a socialist. Um, he's opposed to most of our established institutions here in the U.S. because we are a capitalist country now and he would like to see that change over time. Um, he's not like a revolutionary, you know, Marxist or anything like that. He's fundamentally believes in democracy. Um, but yeah, he's running on a platform of justice for the people, justice for the workers of the world, and ending the wars, I think, is one of his largest focus. He sees U.S. foreign policy as imperialistic and aggressive, and he thinks that we should not be acting as the world police, much less as the world um, brutalizers that we have historically. Does he have a chance of winning? Um, I, I don't see that happening. Um, there are numerous reasons for that. The, the real fact of the matter is he's further left than the median Democratic voter, and because of that, he won't win the nomination. But he's popular enough, like I said, that he could bleed off – well, not well, – I don't know why I said that. He's not running for the nomination of the Democratic Party. He's further left than the average median left-wing American voter. So he's not going to win enough votes from the Democrats to be able to beat whoever the Democratic candidate is. 
Um, but he's going to be able to possibly win enough votes to maybe sink a Democratic candidate up against a Republican because he'd be splitting the progressive vote. Does the U.S. need more than two parties? I don't know if we need more than two parties because, for one, the type of system that we're in tends to manifest as a two-party system Um, because at least at the federal level we have what is basically a plurality system where a person who wins the majority of the votes wins. Um, And that manifests typically over time as a two-party system because people become scared of wasting their vote, so they tend to start voting of one of two candidates or one of two parties. Um, But another thing you have to realize is that our parties that we already have are coalitions in the sense. So like if you look at European governments, you might have a bunch of different parties, but they form coalition governments and they kind of make govern in a sense as one party, even though you have separate interests within them. You see that already in the Democratic and Republican Party, um, because the Democrats are kind of a coalition of progressives and moderates and centrists, and the Republicans are a coalition of, you know, your traditional neoconservatives and your neoliberals and your kind of new age MAGA populists. So the parties already have diversity in them. Um, And in many ways, our two-party system can make it more effective for us to get things done. It's hard enough for us to get people to agree in our two-party system, I, I think it might be a nightmare if we had four or five parties in Congress. The, the likelihood that any legislation would get passed would be low, and we'd probably end up in a similar situation where they'd be governing as a coalition anyway. I don't think it'd be that much different than what we currently have. So you don't see a third party having much impact on the political scene? I think it could definitely have an impact. I mean, in the scenario I described with Cornell West, they could potentially bleed away enough votes to where they could swing elections one way or the other. Um, In terms of rising up and taking over one of the traditional two parties that we have, it's possible. It's happened before. I view it as unlikely. Um, And the primary reason I view it as unlikely is because if a third party starts to generate enough support where they're bleeding enough They're bleeding away or taking away enough voters to where it causes one of the two parties to take recognition of that. One of the things about our system is that those parties can then adopt some of those policies and win those voters back. So they're adaptive in a sense that I think makes it very difficult for third parties to really ever break through that ceiling and achieve that same sort of mainstream status as the Democratic or the Republican parties. Has anyone else entered by third party, or is it just Dr. West? I I mean, the Libertarians always run someone. I don't know who it is this year. I haven't looked. Um, and there are plenty of other smaller parties, um, but I, I don't tend to keep up on them just because they're not really big enough. I mean, we have a communist party here in the U.S., and I couldn't tell you who they've elected for the last four years. I mean, I don't – I really don't know. News coverage of presidential candidates for the 2024 elections is going to be ramping up. What are the biggest issues that will be influencing voters in 2024? Yeah, so I typically like to break, I'd say it's politics and then it's personality, right? So when they're looking at candidates, they're considering, okay, what are their policies and how do I like them as a person? Um I think I think policies can really be broken down into three categories. So that's going to be domestic economy, domestic like cultural and social issues, and then foreign policy. Um, 
I think in terms of economic issues, um, inflation is starting to come down, but it's still something people are concerned about. It's still something people are feeling in their day-to-day lives. That's probably going to have an impact. Assuming we don't fall into a recession between now and then, you're going to be hearing a lot about inflation and prices, affordability. You're already seeing some Republicans start to ramp up messaging on that, talking about how people are struggling to afford basic necessities in Biden's America. Um, Social issues, the culture war is going to play a role. A lot of people like to pretend that the culture war doesn't matter and it's fake or whatnot. Well, even if it's manufactured, it still has an impact on our politics. People still vote according to it. So I think things like trans issue is going to be a big thing. Even though it affects a small number of people, it seemed to really mobilize a large contingent of conservative voters in opposition to that sort of thing. So that's going to be playing a role. So LGBTQ issues as a whole are going to be big. Women's rights with abortion, that's going to play big. That really helped deliver for Democrats in the midterms, and I would assume it's going to play a pretty significant role going into 2024 as well, especially depending on who the Republican nominee ends up being because DeSantis, at least in his rhetoric and in his policy, seems to be a bit more uh, extreme on the issue of abortion than Trump is because Trump seems to be at least politically savvy enough to know that it's probably not a good idea to run a hard line on that if he wants to win a general election. Um, so yeah, I think those are some of the issues. And then in terms of foreign policy, Ukraine is going to be a big one. China is going to be a big one um, because people on different sides either think we need to be really hard on China or we should start building our relationship back. There are people that think, well, yeah, we definitely need to be in Ukraine. We need to be you know, helping them fight back against Russian aggression. And then you also have people that say, we have no business in Ukraine. We need to get out. Uh, We shouldn't even be in NATO. There's some of the more extreme people. So those issues are going to play a big role as well. So I think there are some people that are going to care more about certain issues than others. But as a whole, I think those are going to be the main focal points that are going to be talked about on a day-to-day basis. What do you think will not get enough attention? I think it's going to be the standard boring things that tend to not get enough attention. It's like the fundamental uh, economic reforms we need to do. Um, as much as I'd love an election cycle that's centered on you know, uh, universal health care and uh, free or reduced cost education, affordable housing, uh, these, t- these types of things are a bit less incendiary. They tend to get less media attention. And in the absence of a massive economic shock or a large-scale grassroots movement, uh, you're probably not going to see a lot of talk about these things aside from, you know, some of the other uh, Democrats that are going to try and challenge Biden for the Democratic nomination. But aside from them, I don't think you're going to hear much about it um, because there won't be much of an incentive. I think much of the Democratic focus especially in their messaging, will be about stopping Republicans um, and merely trying to prevent them from taking away further rights or making things worse. I don't think you're going to hear a significant amount um, about painting a really progressive vision for America's future simply because there's not an incentive for them to do it. They're going to try and appear more moderate than Republicans, and that means taking a more moderate stance on some of these issues. Let's talk about Trump. Let's do it. What's going on with the indictment? So, what, what is he being accused of? Yeah, so I think he got indicted on 37 counts. 31 were for the like willful retention of national defense information. Um, three were for withholding documents in a federal investigation. 
I think two were for false statements and then one was for um, a conspiracy to obstruct justice. And now if the claims and the evidence that has been presented in this indictment so far are true, it's not looking good for him. Um, because not only uh, are there witness testimony and supposed you know, tape recordings of him saying things that are very condemning in this case, um, it, it's, it's just it's not good. Um, perhaps the worst one, um, he apparently showed uh, some classified information that allegedly. was... Allegedly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he allegedly showed some classified information um, detailing the invasion plan of a specific Middle Eastern country to someone that was visiting Mar-a-Lago. Um, apparently he was on tape saying this, and he was telling them essentially that this is top secret, that he shouldn't be showing them, that he could have declassified it when he was president, but he didn't. Um, all of those things take away a lot of the arguments that people that were for him were making, which is that, well, as president, he had the authority to declassify these documents. He knew they weren't declassified. He said he knew they weren't declassified, and then he showed them to someone. Um, and on top of this, you know, there are a lot of people that say, well, you know, why is Trump being persecuted for this when Biden had documents, Pence had documents, everyone's got documents? The difference is actually pretty essential. So the willful retention part is very important. So it's one thing if you have documents with you. I mean, these uh, these federal uh, officials have a lot of documentation, right? Um, some of that is classified. Some of that is inevitably going to end up mixed in. You have boxes and boxes of stuff. It's going to probably end up in places that it shouldn't. That's why the willful retention part is important because as soon as Biden and as soon as Pence figured out that they had this information, they returned it. They didn't fight it. Trump spent over a year fighting with the relevant agencies trying to get this stuff back, and he instructed his lawyers, allegedly, to lie about it, to hide it, and to mislead the authorities in their search for these documents. Um, so that goes really deep into that willful retention part that's so important, and that's what makes this case so bad, is that a lot of this could have been avoided if he had just cooperated, returned what was asked for, Mar-a-Lago never would have been raided. They raided it because there was a subpoena because he wasn't returning the documents that were being requested. So if he had simply cooperated, all of this could have been avoided. But instead, he's now got himself into significantly more trouble than he ever would have been in to begin with. So this court case, as compared to the other one, if that one... You're talking about the one with his uh, business dealings? Yes. Yeah. So which one has more teeth, and are they... Why did they even bring the first one when this one had... Um, in terms of severity, I think this one is significantly more impactful, um, both in terms of optics and in terms of consequences. Uh, the first one... I don't know. I, I think some prosecutor was itching for a chance to, you know, get at him and there were grounds to do it. So he did, but it definitely won't be as consequential as this one. Um, because this one, he is, he's broken federal law in regards, he's broken the espionage act. At least he's viol he's accused of that. Right. Um, I'd say that's probably a bigger deal than some charges relating to sketchy business practices. Um, especially in the eyes of the average American person, um, hearing about this sort of thing. You know, a president that has violated the Espionage Act has a heavier weight to it 
um, than someone who you know wasn't paying their taxes or maybe misreported a few assets. What effect will this have on his campaign? It's hard to – so apparently in the polls, and it shouldn't be surprising because it seems the more they come after Trump, the better he does with Republicans um, because he's seen, I think, in a sort of way as a martyr for a lot of Republican voters. Um, they see attacks on him as attacks on themselves, which we don't have to get into the strange psychology of all of that at the moment. But um, – so yeah, it, it, this has actually boosted him and – terms of the polls for the Republican nomination. But I think in terms of how will he fare on a general election, this is undoubtedly a terrible thing um, because the median voter that's not you know deeply involved in that sort of MAGA world, when they hear that you know everything they've heard about Trump for years has been you know about how chaotic he is as a leader, about you know, all the sketchy things he's done, all the scandals. And then on top of that, now he's being indicted for a violation of the Foreign Espionage Act. Uh, that's a big deal, and I don't think it's going to play well to the average voter, especially if he does end up getting charged and found guilty. That's going to be very bad for him in terms of a general election. And on top of the fact that many people see him as a sort of, you know, radical candidate, um, if he's got... <laughs> federal charges on top of that, it's not going to be a good look for him. What are his supporters saying in opposition to the indictment? Yeah, so it's the same thing. They're really... The facts of the case as it currently stands are so cut and dry that they can't really challenge them. So what you're seeing is this massive game of whataboutism because it's really the only defense that they can levy to support him. So they'll say, what about Biden or what about Pence? Well, we already talked about that. They cooperated with law enforcement. They returned the documents when they were requested. They didn't try and hide anything. They didn't try and play games with them. They did what was asked. As such, they weren't charged. Trump played games. and Or they go back to Hillary Clinton and the whole scandal with her emails and the servers and all that. That's also different because, one, the biggest thing in that the biggest thing with the Hillary emails is they were never able to prove that they were willfully hiding things. Um, they were never able to prove it. They investigated it. They they weren't able to really prosecute anything that they found. And it was also just a different scenario because, I mean, if you look at – they were having you know classified communications basically over an unsecure server. That's kind of what the deal was. But the thing with Trump is kind of different because not only was he hiding these classified documents, but he was just showing them to random people. I mean, imagine if Hillary had been going around showing people, you know, classified files on her phone that she just met in public. I mean, this is a significant step above um, that I don't think makes these situations broadly comparable. Um, and I think this is kind of a longstanding thing with Trump. Um he seems to make bad decisions pretty regularly, um, and he tends to surround himself with people that won't give him the necessary pushback to keep him from making those sort of poor decisions. Or um, he, and you've already seen some of his— Or he will not listen to them. Or he won't listen, or he'll fire them. Um, and that's kind of a problem. And I'm not saying Trump is a dictator, but that is a pattern you see in dictatorial people, which is why some people have likened him to a dictator, um, is that they f surround themselves with yes-men, um, and they basically create this organization that they're the one at the top, they make all the shots, and if they make a mistake, everyone else pays the consequences. 
let's say that Trump is found not guilty and let's say that he acquires enough of the votes and he's back in in 2024, what could he do differently to be a better president for everyone? I think a lot of it would start and end with the people he gets in his administration. Um, his administration in 2016 was a festering pit of nepotism and corruption. He surrounded himself with cronies and family members who were either incompetent, dishonest, or so unbelievably corrupted that they were incapable of functionally doing their job. And that may sound like strong language, but you have to look at the people he put in his administration. I mean, he selected Jared Kushner, a guy who has zero political experience. He's a real estate guy. And he made him, uh, he placed him in charge of some of the most important uh, diplomatic relationships that America has. Um, after leaving office, Jared Kushner received $2 billion from Saudi Arabia. You want to tell me that's not a conflict of interest? Everyone's sitting here all up in arms about the fact that Hunter Biden's son may have made some money on the board of Burisma when Jared Kushner is collecting billions from foreign governments that are sometimes considered an adversary of the United States economically. These are problems. So I think if he wanted to be a better president, he would set up his administration in a way that would run more functionally as opposed to turning it into a dictatorship where he's at the top and everyone's taking his orders. Because yes, it is important as the leader of the executive branch that you're capable of administering leadership. I completely agree with that. But you also need to surround yourself with experts that are able to tell you when you're wrong, tell you why, and you need to be able to listen to them. That is something that Trump does not do well. Anyone that opposed his views on things significantly, anyone that tried to get him to shift directions was either fired or demoted or harassed to the point where they left of their own accord. Uh, a perfect example of this is John Bolton. This is a man with a rich pedigree serving conservative leadership. Um, he's he's uh, a master in terms of foreign relations and diplomacy. Um, Trump originally brought him into the White House, and he was gone shortly thereafter and had nothing but negative things to say about the man. And this isn't some crazy blue-haired liberal snowflake that was offended about Trump's mean tweets. He simply said Trump had no clue what he was doing, his administration was a mess, and he couldn't take direction from anyone. And that is not the type of person you want leading a country. That's not the type of person you want running a restaurant, much less the largest country or the most powerful country in human history. That's not the person you want at the head of the largest military on earth. At this point in time in America, what would be the worst thing that could happen? You know what I think the worst case scenario is right now? Because I I think the logistics of this and the optics of it, it, it would be a mess and it would It'd be a nightmare. So let's say, hypothetical scenario, Trump, for one reason or another, ends up in prison. He runs from prison. He wins from prison. He pardons himself. I want you to imagine the sort of political outrage there would be, both in the United States and abroad. How are foreign leaders going to treat someone, a United States president, who won from a jail cell, how are Americans who didn't vote for him going to view this? I mean, I, I don't see how that wouldn't rip the country apart. 
And then imagine after getting out of prison, he starts using his power as an executive to personally target everyone that prosecuted him. And he purges the executive branch of anyone that stands in his way. That's the nightmare scenario. Now, I think there are a lot of things that stand in the way of that because even if Trump does end up pleading guilty, will he go to jail? I don't know. I think there's a lot of like questionable legal stuff about this that I'm in no way qualified to answer. But in terms of my imagination, that's the worst scenario I can imagine. I wish America could get to the point where supporters would be less about supporting a person and more about supporting our country. And I'm not talking nationalism. I'm just talking not being a f- fan club of a yeah. person. Well, that's that's kind of the danger of populism that I was talking about is that, you know, sometimes people tend to latch on to these strong leaders and they'll follow them wherever they go. I wish more people would be somewhat issue voters, so they would vote strictly according to certain issues that they care about. But in all actuality, that's asking a lot of people because especially for working people with families and maybe they don't have an innate interest in politics like I do or some other people do, asking them to take the effort to not only figure out what the important issues are but then to research and try and figure out what are the best solutions to these issues, that's a lot to ask the average person. But I wish more people would do it because I think that really is probably the path out of these things. Personalities matter but policies matter more. We are already seeing news coverage and of, and of course, there's favoritism. Um, and depending on which broadcast you listen to, you only get one side. You only get one view. And it's rehearsed, rehearsed, rehearsed with the message of what, of the narrative that they want you to believe of a person. I would love to see it become I would love to see it become a priority with any news station to also talk about the issues and not the person and be as unbiased as you can to just give the facts um because the average American, like you said, does not have time to do yeah. research. Mm-hmm. And they really do care. They care about their families and they care about their future. But if the only thing they hear leads them to vote the way that they do, and they're constantly, constantly being told that the other party is out to get them yeah. and destroy them and make their life miserable... Um, then they'll we'll never have peace here, yeah. and there has to be media needs to be accountable, and they need to if they don't do something, they're going to be responsible for the fall of America. Yeah. That's how I that's how I feel. I know. I just I, I don't know. I just in a pragmatic sense, I don't know how we get there. Because it's like, yeah, it'd be awesome if everyone in the media world woke up tomorrow and said, you know what, I'm going to start doing things. The right way? 
Right. But uh, for some of them, I mean, some of them might think they are doing the right thing. I mean, people can have different conceptions of right of right and wrong, and that's not some weird, like, moral relativism. It's just, like, some people might think that, like, I mean, l- look at it this way. If, if you genuinely believe the Republicans are fascists, right, um, you might think it's warranted to lie about them to prevent them from taking power. I mean, imagine... I'm not saying the Republicans are Nazis, but there are people that think that, right? So I'm just saying hypothetically, imagine you were a journalist in Nazi Germany. Uh, you would feel it's perfectly warranted to lie about the Nazis if it prevented them from taking power because you thought you were staving off something so bad that it warranted your immoral action. So a lot of it is not only about being honorable, but having clarity about the real situation. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You need to have clarity about what's actually going on so that you don't justify to yourself actions that really aren't justifiable. Let's switch topics and talk about the Fed now. Okay. They recently met and decided to pause rate hikes. What are the details about that, and what does this mean for Americans? Yeah, so important context here... um, I guess we first need to explain what it means when the Fed hikes rates. Um, so really what the Fed is hiking when they hike rates is something that's known as the federal funds rate. Now, without getting into too many nitty-gritty details on how the banking system works, you can basically just think of this. This is the money that banks lend to each other um, in order to meet reserve requirements um, overnight. Um, and the federal funds rate is the interest rate that they're allowed to charge on those loans. Um, and it is through the federal funds rate that the Fed can, in a sense, um, help, uh, they can, in a way, influence the amount of lending that goes on in the economy. Because the federal funds rate can help influence other interest rates throughout the entire rest of the economy. And it is through that they can control aggregate demand and investment and spending. Um, it's a very indirect tool, and it's received a lot of criticism for that because you're kind of like it, – it's it's almost like a needle in a haystack type approach. It, it's a blunt tool, right? It's not precise at all. But they were trying to tackle inflation by hiking rates. Um, the rationale for that is that inflation is the result of there being excess demand in the economy – In order to get prices down, we need to decrease demand in the economy. We need to do that by making money and capital more expensive. We're going to do that by hiking interest rates. Um, They've been hiking interest rates since, I think, March of last year. Um, At every meeting since then, they've consecutively raised rates. But some data came out prior to this latest meeting that showed that inflation was cooling. Um, I think it was at its lowest uh, level in like two years, at least in terms of its pace of growth which signals to the Fed that either their efforts are working or it's coming down on its own. Let's pause on the rate hikes because we don't want to over-tighten the economy and cause a recession. Um, Now, they did not commit to not raising rates again in the future, but I think they kind of viewed this as a time to take a step back, especially considering we've seen some stress in the banking industry as of late. They don't want to put any undue pressure on the financial system as a whole. So they're going to take a step back, take a look at the data, see what's going on, and then we'll see at the next meeting whether they decide to keep the pause or go with another hike if more data comes out to suggest that might be necessary. 
What is the outlook on inflation going forward? I think it's looking pretty good. Obviously, there are a lot of things that could disrupt what's currently happening, but inflation peaked uh, sometime last year, um, and it's been coming down slowly ever since. Now, just because inflation's coming down doesn't mean prices have stopped rising, but that rate of growth is slowing, which is signaling that things are beginning to normalize. Exactly how long that's going to take is hard to know because this is not a purely linear process. There are ups and downs and peaks and valleys. And there are still many things that are outside of the Fed's control, even outside of America's control, that could affect it. Um, so, for example, OPEC could decide to cut production again. I saw that they're in discussions to do that already. Um, that could put a, more pressure on energy prices, which could spike prices back up again. That's something that's completely outside the purview of the Fed, completely outside the purview of most American officials. Some American diplomats, the president might be able to negotiate that. But at the end of the day, these are autonomous countries that can, in a sense, do what they want with their own production. And if we don't like it, tough for us. Um, so we'll see how it ends up going. But I think inflation is starting to come down, and hopefully within a year or so, we'll be looking at a much more normalized price situation. What is something you have become aware of in the, the past week or two that has given you renewed hope for America? Yeah, so one thing I've seen recently has given me at least some hope that our fundamental institutions aren't so partisan that they're incapable of, you know, looking at certain issues from an objective lens. The Supreme Court recently ruled that a redistricting map, I believe it was in Alabama, um, was unconstitutional and would violate, I believe it was the Civil Rights Act. They found that it would disadvantage uh, black voters in that area or minority voters in general. Um, and I think that's that's actually really impressive because this was a voting – this was a district map that was proposed by Republicans. And as you well know, the Supreme Court leans conservatives. So if they were voting purely along partisan lines, they would have voted to approve this map, but they voted that it was unconstitutional. And I think that shows, at least to some degree, that our institutions are still capable of operating effectively in a relatively nonpartisan matter. There's always going to be some bias because humans are biased and you can never remove that human element from the equation, but that gave me some hope that, hey, maybe all hope isn't lost. What challenged you most to be a critical thinker in something that you've heard recently in the news? I would say probably some of the news of the Trump indictment. Um, because a lot of people want to jump to the conclusion that he's guilty, he should be in jail, all of this stuff. And, you know, perhaps that, that's true. I don't know. But something I've been working on lately is trying to respect the processes that we have and the institutions that we have and ensuring that I'm always open-minded to that process. Um, because, I mean... The heart of the legal process is the concept of innocent until proven guilty. Um, and I think too many people quickly uh, sweep that aside for partisan preferences. Uh, you see it right now with Trump. Um, you saw it on the other side with Hillary. I mean, people were saying lock her up for an investigation that hadn't even happened yet. Um, th these are things that we as Americans should be very wary of. Um, because our institutions are important. That's actually what makes America 
good um, are our institutions. And if we start just throwing them away because of some partisan preference, then we're doing ourselves a disservice. So, I mean, although Trump may very well be guilty of whatever he's being accused of, I will let the courts decide that. Um, and I will respect whatever conclusion they come to. Um, because I'm not a lawyer, I'm not capable of making that judgment for myself. The irony in what you just said in accepting the decision when he himself could not accept the decision. Yeah. Um, very interesting, very interesting. But I do hope that, as you say, we can respect the integrity of our institutions once mm-hmm. again. And that's that's not to say they don't need reform, because a lot of our institutions are flawed. I mean, ev- there's not a country on earth without flawed institutions. I mean, these are these massive social constructed things that we've built, and of course they're going to have problems, but doesn't mean we should just take a hammer to all of them because, as it turns out, many of them are useful. Um, so we need to be careful in that process and not get too carried away and break something we don't understand. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Critical Thinking Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to give our show a follow and leave us a review with any thoughts or suggestions you might have.